You are listening to The Christian Commute, a commute-length podcast about Christian apologetics, theology, and other matters of Christian interest. Here is your host, Seth Dunn. It's Tuesday, September 12th. This is The Christian Commute. I am your host, Seth Dunn. And you're riding with me. Oh, let me see. I think I'll go to the ball fields first. I'm going to go straight there. If it doesn't rain everything out. Leaving work after 6. Not that I put in a particularly long day. I didn't get here very early. My, my sleep schedule has been all thrown off. The secular soccer league people who will not hesitate to schedule a soccer game during church. Scheduled a game, not during church, but on the Lord's Day. They scheduled a a soccer game for me at four, which is fine. Uh, And we went and played the soccer game, and my team blew a 2-0 lead by a team. We We were dominating this team in the first half. They couldn't even get on our third, and then we blew a 2-0 lead, just fell apart. Fell apart and went down 3-2, and we had to scratch and scratch to get back and tie it. So I couldn't sleep that night because I was all torn up about tying that game and losing that lead. And my sleep schedule's been thrown off ever since. So I didn't. I wasn't exactly like up and at them this morning. I'm, I've been too tired. First world, these, these are the things that keep me up at night. Three to three tie. So if you want to know first world problems, like you got people in the Bible and they're ta- asking Jesus, like, when is our city going to be destroyed? And then Jesus is like, yeah, and it's going to be awful for these people when all this stuff happens and the end comes and the people who, the non elect, are going to be really upset. All the tribes of the, the earth will mourn. What's keeping me up at night? Three to three tie. I think we could have beat that team in a shootout. I hate tying. What? No, no, nobody woke up that day and said, let's go tie. They ought to have some kind of tiebreaker in every match. Every match. But that's my, that's my little first world problem. Today's show title is Discerning the Ancient Gates. Discerning the Ancient Gates. It's a song. I'm going to talk about how I discerned that it was from Hell Song. And I have a question in the inbox about analytical theology. Analytical theology. And as always, of foremost importance... We have the Bible chapter review, Matthew chapter 24, verses 36 through 41. Matthew chapter 24, verses 36 through 41. And this is Jesus still talking about the end. But of that day and that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, 
And they did not understand until the flood came and took them away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. There will be two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. So Jesus is very clearly talking about the end of the age here. He had been talking both about the end of Jerusalem, which we know is its destruction 70 AD from the Roman general Titus, the destruction of the temple, but he is also talking about the end, which is to come after, sometime after, quote-unquote immediately after, the destruction of the temple. And he is telling his disciples that you guys are not going to see that coming. Nobody is. There are certain things that have to happen, have to happen first, but no one's going to see it coming. It's going to be like in the days of the flood. So he says it's cataclysmic. So the flood, what did the flood do? It killed everybody except the people who found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So if you go back to the flood story in Genesis, God is sad and upset and regretful. These are, these are anthropomorphisms. That he ever made man upon the earth because the thoughts of man are continually evil. So God resolves to destroy mankind. But Noah, the scripture says, found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord chooses to use a flood to drown everyone on earth. Except for Noah and his family. That is Noah, his wife, his three sons and their wives. And the people living in that day, I mean, you got to understand, it never even rained before. The ground was watered differently. So the idea that it's going to rain and flood is not something on their minds. They're, they don't get it, and they don't know God. And God wipes them out, and it's sudden. And they didn't see it coming. And Jesus says the coming of the Son of Man is going to be like that. One's going to take away, one's going to stay. He gives these examples of people doing their everyday lives. Two men in the field. That's just their everyday lives, working in the field. Women grinding at the mill. Again, that's part of the everyday life. Just people going about making their food, doing their work for the day. And he says it'll be just like that. Because in, in Noah's day, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. Just living their lives, going about their daily routines, boom, they're gone. Here comes the destruction. And I think some people read this and say, well, this is, this is a picture of the rapture. Because there's two people there and one's taking away. And he's raptured. The Greek word there is harpazo. Harpazo, which would be caught up, which we call the rapture. I think we get that from a Latin word. And said, so, oh, see, the people disappeared are the people who are raptured when Jesus comes back. No, I think the people being taken away, uh, I think it's the, the, the destruction. Because the, the, the Son of Man's coming on the clouds and all the tribes are going to mourn. So some think it's the angels gathering elect, the elect in the rapture. Now they're gone and only the lost people are left. But when you think about it in Noah's term, the terms of Noah, when Jesus says it's like the flood... 
No, it's the people who are getting destroyed. I think that are taken away. They're gonna. They're dead. They're dying. They're they're meeting their destruction. The people who remain are like Noah in the ark under God's grace. Because by the way, the ark is a picture of God's grace protecting His elect from the raging tempests and cataclysmic destruction. And note this, he says, if that day and that hour no one knows. Not the day and not the hour. You guys want to know the Greek word for hour? It's aura. <laughs> uh, pretty close to the English word. Probably where we get it. So, an hour is a more specific time than a day. Right? So, what's going to happen? Well, we got, remember the D-Day invasion? You have D-Day and H-Hour. D-Day is the day they were going to invade the beach. H-Hour was the hour they were going to launch. We don't know when the day is, and we don't know the more specific hour. No one knows. Not the angels who are involved in the collection of the elect. Not the Son of Man who's going to come on the clouds and glory as prophesied, but the Father alone. Oh, and hold your horses. Let me pause just for a second here. Because we're going to talk about Jehovah's Witnesses soon. Because as we go on in Matthew chapter 24, we're going to come to the part or the parable of the faithful slave whose master is coming home, but he, don't, he doesn't know when his master is coming home. So he's, he's doing a good job because he knows any time the master could come and say, hey, you've been doing a good job or a bad job. And the watchtower says that it is the faithful slave awaiting the return of Christ. But here's the thing. The watchtower doesn't believe Jesus is God. And one of the ways they will argue with you, to tell you, one of their many anti-Trinitarian arguments, is to say, see, God the Father knows the end, but Jesus doesn't. Now, we Christians would say God the Father knows the end, but God the Son doesn't, because he says it right here. Of that day, no one knows. Not the angels of heaven, not the Son, but the Father alone. It's the Father, by the way, who is doing the sending in this case. When you're looking at things functionally, the Father is going to send the angels to gather his elect. The Father is going to send the Son of Man. He is the one doing the sending out. And it's his timing. And the disciples want to know, like, what's that timing? And Jesus is saying, nobody knows but the Father. But Jesus is God. Jesus is fully human and fully God. Truly human and truly God, as some people like to say it. And God's omniscient. How then does he not know this? The best explanation that I can think of is that it is a limitation of the incarnation. Because we wouldn't think that God would get sleepy and we wouldn't think that God would get tired or we wouldn't think that God would get hungry and we wouldn't think that God would get anxious. But we know Jesus did. Because he is in every way tempted as we are. 
Jesus is hungry, but he's not going to steal any food. Jesus is angry, but he's not going to dis or anxious. He's not going to disobey the Father. Jesus is angry, but he's not going to beat anybody up. Jesus doesn't know the day or the hour. And he is going to rest in God's, the Father's timing, just like everybody else. And I think that's probably the best argument while preserving the d d divine omniscience, omniscience of God the Son. But you have to be ready to respond to that when the Jehovah's Witnesses come and they'll start talking about this verse and they're the faithful slave. And uh, another argument, and I don't think it's as good, would be to make the functional argument. Well, God the Father's doing the sending, and it's not for the angels and the Son to know. Because, like God, God the Son functionally doesn't know because he, he's not authorized to tell them because he's not the sender. Somebody could argue that. But I really think it's more along the lines of a limitation of the Incarnation. And here, here's another thing. Not it's, it's even you got to get strange here. We're, we're doing theology proper here, Lauren. Is God limited? Is it? You might not even want to call it a limitation of the incarnation, but a, a result of the incarnation. Because when you're incarnate, yeah, you're hungry, you're tired, you're angry, you're sleepy. I mean, God gets angry. And he's not, in, like God the Father is not incarnate, but he burns with anger because sin makes him angry and lack of holiness makes him angry. He loves too, but he, he, doesn't, he doesn't grow weary like we do. He doesn't grow, he doesn't have anything to eat like we do. And we've seen elsewhere in scripture where Jesus knows people's hearts. Like when he's healing the paralytic in Mark and he forgives his sins and then they're upset at him and he goes, he knows their hearts and he says, which is easier to say? But I would say here that God non-incarnate knows the hour. And it says, it says only the Father and the Holy Spirit's not incarnate. So maybe that's not the best way to put it. But Jesus flat out says, the Son doesn't know the Father alone. And He's not revealing it. Not revealing the time and the hour. It's just going to be like the flood. And by the way, no one knew the flood was coming because God told him it was coming. And we Christians know the end is coming because God told us it was coming. But we don't know when. We just don't know exactly when. And with that, we will end the Bible chapter review. And before I go on to the question, let me just encourage you once again to go to websites like gotquestions.org or Christian Apologetics Research Ministry, CARM.org, and look at the Christian Apologetic Answers for Matthew 24 and Jesus and Divine Omniscience, because you will face doubters of the faith, doubters of God like Jehovah's Witnesses who don't believe Jesus is God and you need to have an answer for them. It's one thing to know what this verse means. 
And people argue about it. They're like, was this all? Does all of this happen? Does some of this happen? Is this the rapture or not? I mean, people are not really clear on this to this day, eschatologically. And this is a verse about eschatology. But inherent within it, now sometimes I call this incidental theology, is something that's going to make someone question the divine omniscience of Jesus or the divinity of Jesus himself. So be prepared to defend your faith there. And this is a good segue into today's question, which is from Lauren in Chattanooga. Seth, could you tell me what analytical theology is? How does it relate to theology proper? Well, Lauren, you can Google it as good as I can. So, I finished my minor in philosophy at UGA in 2004, and I finished my MDiv in Christian apologetics in 2017. When I was an undergrad taking philosophy classes, especially at a secular school, analytic theology was not a theological discipline that would have been really emphasized yet because it was a really new discipline. It's only been popular since around, I don't know, maybe 2010 when you're talking about published works. And this is something I had to look up because you sent me your question. I think Michael Ray, is a, uh, he's at Notre Dame, is uh, sort of the namesake philosopher of this movement. So when you take somebody like me who was studying philosophy, I'm like, I was still like Descartes and Kant and Socrates, you know, when you take your philosophical survey classes. So this might be, uh, analytical theology might be something you study in the philosophy of religion. And there's philosophy of things. When you think about philosophy as a di- discipline, you have some like philosophy of knowledge, which is epistemology. You have philosophy of science, philosophy of religion. That's another type of philo- philosophy. So there's, there's disciplines that you have, like science or theology or knowledge, that you have a philosophy of. That's why people get a PhD in something. It's a philosophy doctorate. And you can get a PhD in business, you know, philosophy of business. You get a PhD in English literature, philosophy of English literature. So philosophy is a way of looking at things. It's like how to judge the knowledge of things. You didn't ask about philosophy broadly. But there are schools of thought in different philosophies, and I'm saying analytical theology as a philosophical discipline was newer and not as popular when I was doing my philosophical and theological studies. So it's not something as an apologist that I really ran across. But the concepts are. So you have to go back to the way people were doing philosophy, people being, you know, the most popular way philosophers were doing philosophy, say, in the last hundred years. And you think about logical positivism. Logical positivism is the idea that unless you could confirm something through like a test or a proof, it can't be true. And of course, logical positive, logical positive, sorry, Logical positivism is itself contradictory because you can't 
do a proof to prove that it's only true if you can prove something. But that's how they thought of things. And of course, theology and metaphysics would go out the window because how can you prove metaphysical things? But logical logical positivism is fallen by the wayside because in part it's self-contradictory. But still those ways of of very specifically and logically thinking about things and explaining things, like using philosophy to explain something, that's, that's what analytical theology is, basically, is using a philosophical tool set to make statements about theology. Now you ask, how does that relate to theology proper, where theology is, theology proper is theology of the nature of God, right? So if I say... It's a sin to commit adultery. And the proper response to an adulterer is to confront him, ask him to repent, and then forgive him once he repents. Or if he doesn't repent, put him out of the church. I have nothing to do with him if he claims he's a Christian. That's that's what I just did was theology. It was Hamar Theology 1 the sin was adultery and then I did ecclesiology which is how the church should handle it and I'm also talking about forgiveness and mercy is there any of that theology proper? no, theology proper is theology about the nature of God like we'd be talking about his divine omniscience that's theology proper his trinitarian nature that's theology proper now if I were to say that adultery is sinful because it is against the nature of a holy God. Now I'm talking about the holy God. Now I'm doing theology proper. So the where analytical theology would intersect with theology proper is when you would be do, using these philo- philosophical tools or mindsets to describe God. How do we make a philosophical argument that it's logical and coherent to be one being in three persons, for example? So analytical theology is just a way of describing something metaphysical, that's theology, in philosophical terms. And some people would would bristle at that because they're like, where's the philosopher of this age, like the Bible says? Because you say, we don't want to subject God's word to a methodology. Because then it's almost like biblical theology would somehow be subservient or subordinate, I should say, to the methodology of using analytical philosophy. I mean, analytical theology is basically just analytical philosophy in theological terms. And it relates to, say, the philosophy of religion. So that's what it is. I know that's not a very good explanation. It can be good or bad. It's really results-based. If you use analytical theology and you come up with something unbiblical... Well, a lot of good your, your, your analytical philosophy did because you just came up with something in, in, unbiblical. But if, if you can use 
logical and specific philosophical language to explain biblical theology to somebody, I think that's good. And we can think of examples where somebody uses a secular tool set and it's wrong. Remember Resolution 9 of the Southern Baptist Convention a couple years ago that said critical race theory could be used as an analytical tool? That's, that's just bad. That's garbage. Because critical race theory is itself unbiblical. It's not, it's, you don't want to look at cre- creation through the lens of critical race theory. You want to look at it through the lens of scripture, which would repudiate critical race theory. At, just, at, at base, it's nature's conflicts. When the Bible says we're all one race, one race of Adam, and there's many nations, yes, we know, but the critical race theory is everything is through the lens of, of race and, and racism and intersectionality, and that's just, that's not a Christian way to look at the world. So some people might have the same problem with analytical theology. Like you're using, they might say you're using a worldly method to look at the Bible. While others would say, no, we're just trying to be very specific and dot all our I's and cross all our T's in the way we're explaining theology, metaphysical things. I hope that's a good enough answer for you, uh, Lauren. Again, not something I've ever done hardly any work or research into. Because when you're talking about philosophical schools of thought, 2009, 2010, you know, 30 years, that's not a lot of time when you're talking about the history of philosophy. There's a philosophy of history, too. You get a PhD in history. My friend Joe Boshears has one. He also has an MDiv, but it's from Emory Liberal. All right. Let's move on to discerning the ancient gates. Now, you guys who are long-term listeners of this show, you know I don't listen to Christian radio. So the latest, greatest Christian songs, I I don't know who wrote them. I don't know who sings them because I don't listen to the radio. Who sings Tupelo Honey? Well, that's that's Van Morrison. You know, who's who sings Better Man, Pearl Champ? Who sings Don't Take the Girl, Tim McGraw? Yeah, I, if it's a secular song, I know it. But I don't listen to Christian radio because it's garbage. Unless you're talking about WLJA and Ella J, because they play gospel music. So I'm, I want to know that song. I. But I don't really, a lot of the more obscure gospel songs, I don't know. Like if I hear Power in the Blood on the radio, Have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? That's actually not Power in the Blood. That's Are You Washed in the Blood of Them. There is power, power, wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb. But they don't really play that on the radio. But I know those songs. When the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. When's the last time you sang that in church? So I don't know these songs. But when I'm listening to them, it doesn't take me long to discern if this is Hillsong or Bethel or the like. Now here's the thing. If you hear a song on Christian radio, or if you hear if you if you go to a church service and you hear a new song, you could just say, 
I bet this is Bethel, and you have a 20% chance of being right. I bet this is Hillsong, and you have a 20% chance of being right. Because they, they, somebody did a study, and the top 20 songs of the last couple decades have all been from Elevation, Bethel, or Hillsong, or, or Passion, or somebody. So it's the same three or four uh, outfits that are putting the stuff up. It's like, where do you get your food? Your food comes from Cisco. I don't care if you ate at Applebee's or Longhorn or Olive Garden or Red Lobster. I'm, I'm a, I think all of those are Darden restaurants. Or if you ate at Chili's or Texas Roadhouse, your food came from Cisco. That's who they ordered it from. Either Cisco or U.S. Food Service. Or International Jobbers. That's another one. Big, I know I know the big food companies because I used to work for a food wholesaler. But yeah, that's 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 where your stuff is coming from. Did you, did you get some bar, did you get some barbecue? Did you go to Scott's barbecue lately? It's probably Smithfield or IB, uh, IBP that brought that pork, and maybe it was through Cisco. Did you drink out of a styrofoam cup lately down here in the south? Was your sweet tea in a styrofoam cup in the hot summer times? Probably a dart styrofoam cup. All the stuff comes from the big industry. And the, the, the big Christian music industry is Hillsong, is Bethel. So I can sit here and say, oh, yeah, I could tell it was Hillsong. Like, yeah, I had an 80% chance of guessing that. Nevertheless, I was exposed recently to the song The Ancient Gates. So I'm standing there. The song's going on. My daughter's with me. We're singing along. We don't really know it. It seems okay. It's talking about the holiness of God. But then I get to this line. It says, release your worship. And I oh. I went to the Google phone. Look it up. Oh. Hillsong. Now, technically, it's not a Hillsong song. It's by a member or a former member of Hillsong. And this lady either is or used to be the global head of worship for Hillsong. So this is straight from the devil's mouth, okay? But anyway, how could I tell singing this song that, whoop, this is Pentecostal language. And that's what it was. Because it said, release, the, release your worship. Where in the Bible is it talking about releasing your worship? That's the idea that there's some kind of power in me and it's, it's trying to get out. i got to release it. i got to release it into existence. That's how Pentecostals think. So you got to think about, you're at Baptist Church, or even, God forbid, Presbyterian Church, or Methodist Church, singing Hillsong, and they don't talk that way about worship. But if you're a Hillsong, somebody's, Release your worship now! Show him you love him and the power of God is in you! Release it! And, the, you, you know, the people are at uh, T.D. Jake's church going, Push that baby out! Push that baby out! And I'm like, who talks about releasing worship? The Pentecostals. So that's what clued me off. And before I could get my Google machine going to see who wrote it, <laughs> then, then they said something in the song about Prayer, the prayer-soaked words of your worship. I'm not prayer-soaked. Where does the Bible talk about anything being prayer-soaked? 
like you're soaked. You ever heard about we got to soak this in prayer, y'all? We get, you know, little Bentley's sick. He needs a heart transplant, so let's soak little Bentley in prayer. You know, we're going to soak this. We're going to just soak him in prayer. That's Pentecostal language. The Bible doesn't say anything anywhere about soaking anything in prayer. Now, I, I could grant somebody artistic license. Except that prayer soaking really is this esoteric Pentecostal superstitious practice. You can look it up. Soaking prayer. Like if you pray this way, everything will be soaked up. And that's going to be somehow more effective. Soaking prayer is a little little like comp, comp, uh, contemplative prayer. We're just kind of soaking it in. And sometimes I'll hear Baptist preachers say, Oh, I wish we pr- prayed like the Pentecostals. I'm glad we don't because they pray in tongues and they speak out a bunch of nonsense all the time. If we pray less than them, it's because we're not praying superstitious garbage. I'm not trying to release worship. I'm not trying to release my word of faith. I'm not trying to soak the object of my desire or the object of my worship in prayer. God doesn't need my singing to him to be prayer soaked. So I didn't know the song. Quite frankly, I'd never heard of the woman who wrote it. But as soon as I looked her up, I was like, oh, nope, nope. So if you listen for the watchwords of Pentecostalism, of the NAR and word faith and of superstition, you can suss out songs from the evil empires. Now, I'm not a musical person. Like, I don't, I, I don't do notes and chords and progressions. I bet musical people can listen to something where it's like, Oh, that's a, you know, oh, somebody wrote that. That's of the Hillstong style. You know how Elevation likes to do it. Doom, doom, doom. And then build you up. I'm not, I'm not great at that. I don't know music. But be on the lookout for those songs when they come to your church. Sometimes the church will put the lyrics on the screen and then they'll have the little the CCLI or, uh, music licensing on the bottom that's up there real quick. And you can look and see who wrote it. But if that's not up there, you're going to have to use the lyrics. And typically you'll find that the lyrics of a Pentecostal type song or a superstitious Hillsong type song, they're not really teaching you anything about God or reinforcing something about God's nature. It's experiential and it's somehow centered on you. Like in this case, you've got something to release. And then I, then. I was like, well, we're not singing this. I looked at my daughter. I gave her the cutoff sign. No, we're not going to sing this. And then I was like, you know what? I would like to sing Release by Pearl Jam. I've opened up. Release me. And by the way, Release by Pearl Jam could be one of these Pentecostal worship songs that have like woo and oh in it. You ever they're like woo, oh, oh, woo, yeah, uh-huh. Like these are their words for their songs. And you know Eddie Vedder's in that song going, oh, 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 oh
I could I could just imagine some Pentecost. You're strained by your sin. Ask God for your release. You're a slave to sin. You're a slave to money. Give God. You ask for the faith to give it. Plant the seed. Release me. Oh, uh, release me. I think that song is about Eddie Vedder and the relationship he never had with his biological father. That's what I think it's about. But anyway. Oh, 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 a strained relationship with the father. That's perfect. Perfect. It's perfect faux theology song. Oh, yeah, we're going we're gonna to be reconciled with the father through our hill song. Anyway, so that's how you can do it. That's how I did it. That's how I sense it. And you know what, you know what gets me? I'm not. I'm not a musical guy. I can't play an instrument. I'm not. I'm not a worship pastor. Like I, I, I am not in the care of anybody's soul. I mean, my kids and my wife, theologically speaking, because I'm the head of my household. But anybody else, I'm, I'm, I'm not anyone's shepherd. Certainly not vocationally. And I couldn't do that job if I wanted to, because I don't know. I don't know how to direct a choir or play songs. But what you have is you have these music pastors out there and they don't have the basic theological knowledge of the culture around them to recognize when they're singing Pentecostal language that means something totally different than than biblical language or a biblical understanding. They just think it sounds nice. Oh, prayer soaked. That's good. Yeah, because... That's a thing with them. That's part of their manipulation. And now you've brought it in here. And it's just so sad. You know, one time uh, when I was looking for a job, you guys, I think I've talked about working at Brooks McGinnis before. Uh, When I got uh, laid off from Malden Jenkins, I had a period there where I was just scrambling to find decent employment. When you're a CPA, you can always find employment, but might not be as good as the employment you just had. So that was, uh, what was it, around 2009? I think, more was it 2007? I don't even remember. It was a rough time because I didn't, I, didn't my, I lost my job, my wife lost my her job. So I was working in a very big success, it's not, it's not super big, not like Big Four, but it's a prestigious firm. I mean, the, the this associates got paid a lot. That I mean, in, this was would have been two thousand seven, making fifty five thousand dollars a year straight out of your masters. Fifty thousand dollars a year is not a whole lot now, but back then that was a lot of money, especially for somebody with zero years of experience in accounting. So it was a good firm and a prestigious firm, but it was a banking firm. Uh, they had a lot of banking clients, and if you guys remember the economy of that day was not good for for us at Malden and Jenkins. They're still around, but uh, a lot of associates and managers had to go, and I was one of them. So I was I was scrambling around to find a job. I found a job doing taxes at a wealth management firm for a while, and then I found a job at Brooks McGinnis, and they did church auditing. I thought, this is a good experience for me because I'm getting a, a Master's of Divinity, and I can go around and audit some of these churches.
And I remember not wanting to take the job when I went to it because at the interview, they made me take a little test. Like, what is? how do you reconcile a bank statement? And I'm sitting there thinking, what do you mean, how do you reconcile a bank? I have a master's degree of account in accounting. I, I have a CPA's license. I have passed the CPA exam. And you're making me take a, like a little accounting test on how I would do these things? And I was insulted. And I was thinking to myself, like, this job obviously is so low paying that it is attracting people below my station, below my education. I don't know how to say it. Not the guy who was in the big time at Malden Jenkins making $55,000 a year. John, if you're listening, you could tweet about how I was wearing an alligator shirt. This is not a test for a staff accountant, CPA with a master's degree, and four, four different alligator shirts. No, I have five. Five, five, five alligator shirts. How, how dare they? But also at the same time, it's like, I, you know, I, I want to make my mortgage and my wife doesn't have a job and I don't have a job and I need insurance. So it's one of those times I have to swallow my pride and take this test. And I think I got a hundred on it. So, And you guys, if you've ever been in that experience, you go to apply for a job and they're going to give you a little pretest. I was like, okay, if they're having to pretest people, who knows what kind of candidates they're getting in there. So to give you an idea, that job was in Dunwoody off of Glen Ridge, which is an expensive area, and it paid $45,000 a year. So I was making fifty-five, dollars and now I'm applying for a job that's $45,000 a year. And I got the job, and I took the job, and I learned some stuff on that job. Uh, wasn't the pay and benefits I was used to, but I got by, and I was thankful to have it. And there were some nice people there, and there were some people there who were terrible. But that's like that's like any any uh, any employer. And it's hard for me to get along with people. I hadn't been diagnosed with autism yet. I, I had a manager yell at me in First Baptist Church. Just started yelling at me at First Baptist Church of Rome, and I'm sitting there thinking like the partner's in the room, and this guy's yelling at me, and I'm like. Dude, number one, you can't talk to people at work like this. And dude, number two, we're at church. Like, we're going to get fired from this job because you're screaming at the staff guy. And I had done something to upset him. (laughs) Actually, I made up with that guy later. But anyway, one of the things I noticed there is like, yeah, I get it. There's people here that probably couldn't get more than $45,000 a year. And they don't have their masters yet. And they are not licensed. And you know what? Truth be told, if I was the best staff guy at Malden Jenkins, I'd have got promoted into Malden Jenkins. I'd still be there, but I wasn't. All that to say is, even to get that little puny job for $45,000 a year at a nonprofit auditing firm, nonprofit auditing firms don't make as much money as others, I had to take this little test. And I don't think that a lot of these music ministers out there, and these are guys probably making eighty or $90,000 plus a year, could sit down and take a little test of lyrics and identify the lyrics 
or the inherent theology that would point towards Pentecostalism and NAR stuff. They couldn't do it. And if that's the case, then they shouldn't have their jobs. But here's the thing even worse. The ones that can do it and still do it shouldn't have a job because they're just trying to entertain goats with goat songs. But the next time you're standing in church in any town USA, in XYZ Baptist Church, and here they start a song you're not familiar with, there's certain watchwords you can pay attention to that will tell you every time. I'll throw in one other example. The first time I ever heard beautiful name. What a beautiful name it is. What a beautiful name it is. The name of Jesus Christ our King. And I'm like, yes. It is. Yes, he's our king. It is, uh, it is a beautiful name. And you got, you got the gospel. You got how beautiful are the feet that uh, uh, bring good news. And then you didn't want heaven without me. What? So you brought heaven down. I'm like, I guess, technically, I am one of the elect. So you did want me. It had anything to do with me, because I, you know, I didn't contribute to my salvation. But I guess, technically, um, yes, Jesus did come to die for the elect. But I know that's not what you mean, Hillsong. <laughs> because your theology ain't that deep. And it's like, what? What? You didn't want heaven without... Now this song's about me. Not about what, what, you know, what can I do for you? You have given everything to me. What can I do for you? You pulled me out of bondage, made me renewed inside. That's a Bob Dylan song. What can I do for you? That's from his Christian music days. That, by the way, that's vineyard music. In case you were wondering, it came out of the Vineyard Movement. He, he was in the Vineyard Movement then. But Bob Dylan's songs tend to be more theologically astute than Hillsong. But I remember that I was like, what? This is me-centered. And I think a lot of churches change that lyric. But I was like, ah, me-centered theology. This has got to be Hillsong. And it was. So learn to discern the me-centered theology and the Pentecostal watchwords so you don't get caught up in your church participating in this garbage and don't endure it let them know it's not acceptable hey look it didn't it didn't rain practice out thanks for listening to the christian commute lord willing i'll be back with you again thursday as always god bless and as always remember christianity is not about getting saved it's about being saved now let's go I'm gonna go I'm gonna go sing uh, a Bob Dylan song I was blinded by the devil born already thanks for listening to the Christian commute please send your questions about Christian apologetics and theology to SethDunn88 at gmail.com if you are not a Christian please remember that you can be reconciled to God through the shed blood of his son Jesus Christ The Bible teaches that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Repent of your sins now and accept Jesus as Lord. God bless.